It is really good to be back here, actually. Um, when you've been somewhere for about so three or four months, um, and then you're whisked away somewhere else and trying to get to know more people and doing other things, it, it can all be quite disjointing. So it was really nice for us to get back about two Sundays ago and just be here on, on Sunday morning. Um, and it feels like we're back at home-ish, temporary home. Um, and it's especially great to, to be able to, to be sharing with you this evening from God's Word. I would encourage you to get the, the Bible back out again and go back to page, I think it was 1098, to Acts chapter 6, <clears throat> just as we look at these verses together. In the average Christian home, uh, certainly around Sunday dinner time, it's my experience that quite often conversation is rife about church things. More specifically, maybe the leaders of the church, and even more specifically, maybe the minister of the church. What that minister has been doing, what the minister hasn't been doing, the length of the sermon, the lack of a sermon, what the sermon should have said, what the elders and the minister should be doing, how they should be spending their time, what their priorities should be. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody has an opinion. I spent, as Dan was saying, I spent just over about six months now at uh, PCI Ministry Training College at Union. And if I'm honest, sometimes I myself get a bit confused about what it is I am expected to be when I enter full-time ministry. I kind of hope there's nobody important in from Union. I know Daryl's here. But um, there seems like so many aspects to the work. Am I going to be a counselor? Am I going to be a social worker? Am I going to be a financial advisor, a manager, a teacher, an administrator, a chairman? What is it? What is my priority going to be? Well, these were issues that were facing the new community of Jesus Christ. They found themselves the first church facing such issues. And tonight, I hope that the Bible will, will give us some answers. We've seen over these past weeks that the Church of Acts was a radically growing church. We get snippets of it as we read in these first chapters. The end of Acts 2 and verse 41, we read that 3,000 were added to their number. Then on in verse 47 of chapter 2, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Well, this evening we come to Acts chapter 6. And it opens with these words, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing. This is a rapidly growing community of faith. And that growth is great and fantastic and exciting and it's inspiring. That is, of course, unless you're the devil. Christoph has already flagged up for us the three-pronged attack of Satan against the church. We've seen, in the first two, we've seen the first two tactics at work already in the book of Acts. Outside the church, he had attacked on the level of persecution, and we saw that that didn't work. Inside, he has tried to attack through corruption. Well, we saw, and Ananias and Sapphira certainly saw, that that didn't work. And tonight we see coming into play his third attack operation, distraction. Satan is hell-bent, literally, on trying anything 
that will stunt the growth of the church. We need to watch out because his aim is still the same and his tactics haven't changed. We'll come shortly to what it was that Satan was trying to distract the church and more specifically its leaders from. But what is the essence of this distraction? Well, in Acts 6 and verse 1, we see the first seed sprouting up of division and disunity in the church. The first lesson we take away from these verses this evening is this. Complaining threatens unity and reverses the work of Jesus. In first century Judaism, there were two main language groups. Okay? There were the more traditional Jews who had remained around Palestine. They were culturally Hebrew and they spoke Aramaic. These guys were what our passage refers to as the Hebraic Jews. Then there were a second group who had been influenced by the Greek empire around them. These guys were more contemporary. They had taken on many Greek customs and they spoke Greek. They are the Grecian Jews. I want you to imagine the conflict. You know, some of the more traditional Hebrew Jews maybe have a bit of a superior attitude. The Greek Jews, more in touch with the culture of the day, but they maybe have a hint of an inferiority complex when they attend the big Jewish festivals. You know, they, they feel like they're not as good as, as the more traditional uh, Hebrew guys. Well, these are the two groups that made up the early church. It was, it was two different groups of Jews. And both groups would have socially disadvantaged members. In this case, it was their widows. The Greek speakers thought that their widows were getting a raw deal when it came to the distribution of welfare. It's not fair. We can hear the accusation ring out in verse 1. Now, if that was true, it certainly wasn't deliberate. We want to remember that this church was a growing church, and it was growing really quickly. We're talking 5,000 plus people here. And reading between the lines, it's pretty obvious that the 12 leaders are responsible for everything that's going on. They're preaching, they're praying, they're looking after finances, they're distributing food, they're managing, and they just can't cope with it. Things are starting to go wrong because it's simply too much for 12 guys on their own. The leaders just have too much to do. The book of Acts was originally written in Greek, and the word we have in our translation for complaining, they would have had as a word that, it's a bit of a weird word, but it's gogusmosing, right? And I don't tell you this to sound clever. If you saw my Greek coursework or any of my Greek class tests, you would say that that's clearly not the case. Just ask Daryl, he's in my class. But I tell you, because it's a great word for complaining. Because it sounds like that, doesn't it? Gogusmosing. The people were gogusmosing against each other. They were whinging. It's a real whingy word. Now, this same word was used before in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. I wonder if you can cast your minds back quickly and think where. Where were the people of God best remembered for complaining and whinging? 
Well, it's when they were wandering in the desert. God has just brought them out of Egypt. They were slaves. They were bound up. They were, they were caused to work all day. And God has rescued them out of it. And he has Moses leading them through the desert, and they're free. And God is providing for them. But then they start gogusmosing. They whinged and they complained. And there were serious consequences for a lot of them because they never saw the promised land. God was angry. So whinging is serious. The book of Acts makes clear that the risen Lord Jesus Christ, through his word and by his spirit, has created a new united community. Acts 4 and verse 32 said all the believers were one in heart and mind. They were one. They were united. But this whinging has come in. And now the one has become two again. Unity has become disunity and division. The work of Jesus and his spirit has been reversed. See, we have the Greek speakers and we have the Aramaic speakers. We have them and we have us. And it's because of them that our widows are getting a raw deal. This is what the church is beginning to fall into here. Today in the church, Bible-believing Christians are absolutely right to be wary of anything and sensitive to false teaching because it's dangerous and damaging and it, it is a threat. But the warning here is that we're to be just as wary of whinging and complaining. Normally it comes from comparing our lot with someone else's lot. Comparing is the pathway to complaining. We're not getting a fair share of the welfare. Other church groups get more attention than ours. Other church groups get more helpers than ours. Other church groups get a bigger budget than we do. They get better leaders. They get more of the limelight. They get more opportunities. Complaining leads to division. One equals two again. Now, I run a real risk of discrediting any intellectual kudos that I may have left, but alongside Greek, maths was never one of my strong subjects either. So that's why I like Jesus maths. One plus one equals one. The early church leaders saw how serious whinging and complaining was. They saw how serious division and disunity threatened the church and the work of the gospel. A divided church is not going to be attractive to people who don't go to church, is it? A divided church is not going to be looking out, but looking in. A divided church will please Satan as it plays out one of his tactics for him and distracts the leaders. Which leads on to the second and main lesson from these verses in Acts chapter 6. Because why is it? Why does Satan want to distract the leaders? Well, it's because wise leadership leads to growth. In verse 2, we see that the twelve make an immediate response. And they set out in no uncertain terms what their priorities are to be. They say it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. The telling mark of a wise leadership 
is this priority. They are utterly single-minded in what they have to do. It's word and prayer. They say, that's us. That's what we do. That's what we, the leaders, are into. And it's underlined in the repetition in these verses. It's firstly said in verse 2, and then it comes straight away again in verse 4. You see, there's just too much to do. Issues of division are coming up because of this. And it's threatened to distract the leaders from their priority of word and prayer. Now, we, we need to know and understand that it's not that they were saying serving tables was beneath them. Not at all. This sort of welfare is such a significant part of the church in Acts. I mean, the twelve were doing this. That's how important they thought it to be. We've seen that the church, when the church started, they, they shared as, as the need arose. So they're not saying that I'm not going to get my hands dirty. They're not saying I'm better than that or, or I don't do that. Don't you know that, that I'm a preacher? Not at all. It just wasn't what God had called them to major on. The Word of God, the message of the gospel, with the Spirit's help, was what brought the church about in the first place. And so the attention of the twelve had to be a continued focus on this number one priority. Without the Word, there is no growth. Without the Word, there is no unity. Without the Word, there is no church. Welfare is not enough on its own. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And it's crucial to the life of our community of faith here in Kirkpatrick that the leaders are able to give their time to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, notice that I didn't just say it's crucial to the life of our community of faith that the leaders give their time to prayer and the ministry of the word but that I said it is crucial that they are able to. Because you see, this has two sides to it. Firstly, it is the responsibility of the leaders to give their time to prayer and to the Word. And I would encourage strongly that we all pray for those who do this. We've got to pray for Christoph as the main teaching elder. We've got to pray for the other elders who teach the Word either here at the front or in fellowship groups. We've got to pray for all the leaders as they give themselves prayerfully to this community because other things do distract. Email inboxes constantly compete for time and put potential distractions on the radar. I'm not talking about bad things. I'm thinking about good things because there's always good things to be involved in. There's always good things to be done. And the choice is rarely between doing something good and doing something bad, but between doing what is good and doing what is best. See, the 12 leaders of the Acts Church here knew that they had to be really focused and single-minded, and they made choices based on this. The leaders of the church today simply must do the same. 
But the other side of this comes where I said that the leaders must be able to do this. I think today there is a challenge to us as the church to help our leaders on their journey to single-mindedness. And I really do wonder how good we've been as a church in recent years at this. Talking about church denomination-wide. I was talking to one of the guys at college during the week about this passage and, and running a few things by him. And he, a story came immediately to his mind about his home church minister who on Sunday morning when he was in his study just praying and, and preparing and finishing off his, his work for the Sunday service got a phone call demanding to know why there was no soap in the dispensers in the toilets. He was actively engaging in preparing his teaching for that mo- Sunday morning And someone in the congregation thought it was more important that he knew where the soap was to put in the dispensers in the toilets. What are the expectations that we have of our leaders? What can we do? Or what can we not do, as the case may be, to ensure that they are freed up to pursue what must be their priority? It's really crucial that Kirkpatrick has the right expectations of its leaders. And it's crucial that those leaders ensure that Kirkpatrick continues to be a prayerful, Bible-learning church. That's what the early church of Acts was. And that's what will help and will fuel every other ministry going on here. Because although the leaders of the early church were single-minded with their ministry priority work, it's almost the opposite when it comes to the ministry of others. The ministry priority for the leaders is to be narrow and specific, but the ministry of the whole church is to be wide and shared. Verse 3 here highlights, among other things, the importance of other ministries. In this particular case, the welfare of the needy. And we've got to see that no ministry is superior to another. All of them require spiritual people people who are full of the Spirit, to exercise them. You see, all Christians, without exception, being followers of Him who came to, to be, not to be served, but to serve, are themselves called to ministry. Indeed, to give their lives in ministry. In our church, we need to grab onto a vision of the wide diversity of ministries to which God has called His people. John Stott says this, and I can't better it. The apostles were not too busy for ministry, but preoccupied with the wrong ministry. So are many pastors. Instead of concentrating on the ministry of the word, which will include preaching, counseling, and training, they become overwhelmed with administration. Sometimes it's the pastor's own fault because he wants the reins kept firmly in his own hands. And sometimes it's the people's fault because they want him to be a general factotum. In either case, the consequences are disastrous. Folks, we really need to ensure that the leaders here, and if I'm honest, I'm thinking most specifically of Christoph in this, that he is set free from unnecessary tasks in order to give himself to the ministry of the word and to prayer. And the leaders need to ensure 
that we discover our gifts and develop ministries that are appropriate to us. Well, verses 5 and 6. The apostles sent uh, all of the disciples to appoint seven men for this task, for this particular ministry. Now, in some places where the seeds of disunity have been allowed to grow, this would be a classic time for political maneuvering and for some behind-the-scenes shenanigans. See, both sides would be wanting a majority in this group. The Aramaic speakers might have been hoping for a 5-2 victory. The Greeks' worst fear was being on the back end of a 6-1 defeat. Both groups were wanting to get our man onto the seat. You can imagine the apostles thinking, why did we pick an odd number? Somebody's going to get the majority. But when the paper came back and the names were on it, well, have a look at the names. The names are all Greek. It was a 7-0 victory. Or was it? See, I, I don't know. Because it seems that the Aramaic speakers supported the Greek speakers fully. That's where the perceived problem was. The Greeks are having issues with their widows, so let's put the Greeks in charge of this. We'll make it more Greek. See how important the church knew that unity was? They went out and said, we're going to work for unity here. Whether they discussed it or not, that's what they did. Precious unity. There was a particular, particularly strong church growth spurt in America in the 18th century. The main leader was a man called Jonathan Edwards. And the church grew rapidly. And he and his fellow church leaders were fearful of losing this blessing. That's how they were thinking of it, through division within the church. So they made a community resolution. Perhaps it's something we can think about individually or in our groups and teams here, but they made a covenant. And it was entirely voluntary. They made a covenant and they sought to practice these commitments. And maybe we ought to own them ourselves. Certainly we ought to ponder on them and pray about them. Let me read them to you. Number one, in all our conversations, concerns, and dealings with our neighbors, we will be honest, just, and upright. Number two, if we wrong others in any way, we will not rest until we've made restitution. Three, we promise that we will permit ourselves to indulge, that we will not permit ourselves to indulge in any kind of backbiting. Four, we will be careful not to do anything to others out of a spirit of revenge. Five, when there's a difference of opinion concerning others' rights, we will not allow private interest to influence us. Six, we will not tolerate the exercise of enmity or ill will in our hearts. Seven, if we find that we have a secret grudge against another, we will not gratify it, but root it out. Eight, we will not allow over familiarity in our talk with others or anything that might stir up licentious behavior. Nine, 
we will resolve to examine ourselves on a regular basis, knowing that the heart is very deceitful. And 10, we will run with perseverance the race that is set before us, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Comes from the book of Philippians. It's astonishing, isn't it? We need to be coveting that kind of attitude. Finding our unity precious because it's a gift of Jesus. We need to be valuing unity over all the things that could be seeds for disunity. Complaining threatens unity and reverses the work of Jesus. So we must reject gogoosmossing. We must repent of whinging. We must pray for and help the practice of wise Christian leadership that gives priority to where it ought to be. Someone once said, the main thing is to ensure that the main thing remains the main thing. The main thing is to ensure that the main thing remains the main thing. Preaching the word and prayer. Wise leadership means sharing out the ministry to spirit-filled and wise church members. And the result is twofold. Church unity and church growth. See verse 7 there? It's a wonderful, wonderful verse. It's a great summary for the section that we've just been looking at this evening, but it's also a great summary for the whole first part of this book of Acts. Did religious and political power increase? We saw that in chapters 4 and 5. No, the Word of God did. Even some of the religious hierarchy were converted. Did corruption grow? No, the Word of God did. Did disunity, disagreement, whinging, and grumbling spread? No, the Word of God spread. It's wonderful, isn't it? Mission unstoppable. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Amen. Let's pray together. Maybe in the, in the quiet, just for a moment, we want to reflect on what these verses have actually said to us tonight. What are our thoughts on the Christian leadership in this congregation? Are we aware of where the priorities should be? How are we going to help that happen? How do we deal with these ten principles as laid out by Jonathan Edwards as the way to preserve unity, to stop division, which ultimately stops the spread of the gospel? Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this book of Acts in particular, we thank you for the encouragement and the challenge that even looking at it over these past weeks has brought. And Lord, we pray that tonight as we see once more that 
your word will spread, that the church will grow, and Satan's attempts are futile. That, Lord, we have a part to pray, to play in that growth and that spread. Lord, enable us to make changes where they're needed. Enable us to support the leaders of our church. And Lord, help us to be people who, first and foremost, want to see this church as a place that preaches the Word of God and gives itself fully to prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.